Hello and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I'm your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today we continue our anabasis through Alexander Great's magnificent life with a discussion of the early days of his kingship. This episode, I will be primarily discussing the assassination of Philip II of Macedon, Alexander's ascension to the throne, and the moves that he took once in power to solidify his power in his own court, and then to reaffirm his power in the wider Greek world by, you know, establishing himself in areas that his father conquered or in areas that had fallen under his father's thumb. I will also discuss the state of the treasury and nation as a whole that Alexander inherited from his father. But first, before we get into all that good juicy stuff, if you did what you're hearing, be sure to follow the show on Instagram at High Tea Obsessed Podcast. The best place to stay up to date with everything happening on the show, things like if there's a delay in the episode, sometimes memes, books I've been reading, I update like every book that I've read throughout the year. It goes in the whatever it's called when there's a collection of Instagram stories, and then I pair it with a song that I think encapsulates it, and then this year I'm going to try to rate them, so we'll see how that goes. And it's also like I'm going to be on the Words and Whiskey podcast starting next month, so good place to stay up to date with that as well. Also, if you would leave a rating and review on the podcast platform of your choice and follow and subscribe to the show if you don't already there as well, that would of course be very sick and very much appreciated and would earn a hearty thank you from me. On a related note of like sort of podcasting news, I got a new mic since the last time we spoke, since the last time I recorded an episode. The last one was very good. But this new one that I got, it's next level. I wanted to try to easily be on the same level of my friends over at HowlerPod and Words and Whiskey when we team up for the new coverage of the Greenbone Saga. And so if you out there listening, you notice a difference quality-wise, please let me know, just so, you know, it makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel like I made a wise investment in the show. And if you notice a bad difference in quality, please let me know that as well so that I can adjust my settings and get it all squared away. But that little bit of housekeeping, that little bit of dusting, mopping, tidying up out of the way, let's, down, let's get down to business out here, huh? As I'm sure all you brilliant listeners recall, Philip was assassinated in 336 BCE during the celebration of his daughter Cleopatra's marriage to his brother-in-law, Alexander of Epirus. Now, this is a little confusing because the Macedonians pretty fond of naming people the same thing. So, Philip just married Cleopatra Eurydice, has a son named Alexander, this Cleopatra being married is his daughter and Alexander's full sister, and she's marrying her uncle, her full uncle, through Olympias, Alexander of Epirus. So, two Alexanders, two Cleopatras, everyone's mostly related, it's a lot going on. But, but all that relations out of the way, our dude Philip was killed during the ceremony celebrating the wedding by his current bodyguard and former lover, Pausanias. We can't say for certain what precisely his motivations were and whether anyone besides himself was involved, 
But here at Haichi Obsessed, we love one thing, perhaps more than others, but we certainly love this thing a lot, and that is a murder mystery. So let's look at some potential motives and suspected benefactors of Pausanias. The given reason, and the reason that it seems like those in the ancient world believed, was that Pausanias was motivated to murder Philip by a desire for personal revenge. If you recall, Pausanias had been sexually assaulted and humiliated socially by Philip's father-in-law and leading general, Attalus, and those in his employ. And due to the importance of Attalus in the court of Philip II, Philip refused to give Pausanias any redress, any vengeance, and had done nothing to address the situation other than raising Pausanias to an esteemed position as a key, key bodyguard. But personal revenge against the chain certainly seems motivation enough given the circumstances. And given the publicity of the assault by Attalus against Pausanias, the Macedonians weren't hard-pressed to take this motive at face value. Aristotle would even list this as the motive for the attack when writing about it later and used it as an example of an assassination motivated by perceived personal harm. Feel like Aristotle, little note, we could just say genuine personal harm, but whatever. There are also stories that Pausanias is said to have asked a sophist how to achieve fame, and that he, w- he was told that someone who killed a great man would be remembered alongside him forever. Diodorus gives us this account and provides many of the details we have for Philip's assassination. Now, it is my understanding that this personal motivation for killing Philip was understood generally as the reason for Philip's death, and was also sort of understood or suspected and reasonably believed that Pausanias was acting alone. Yet rumors persisted at the time and still to this day, and scholars have been theorizing ever since, despite the fact that we really have no way of knowing what happened for sure. Later ancient sources, some of them would pin the blame on Olympias, saying that she stoked the fire in Pausanias' heart, Jealous of the younger and more beautiful Cleopatra Eurydice, scared of her diminishing power in the court, and even more fearful that a new heir would usurp her son's position. Some say that she wept over Pausanias' death, had him interred with honors upon his death, and had him removed from, he was crucified after killing, after he was killed and after killing the chain, and had him removed from there, and she wept at the sight. These, I think, most modern historians would say, were just sexist rumors and not entirely reliable, especially because Olympias participated in the wars without the wars of Alexander's successors, so there was a lot of reason to spread nasty rumors about her. Justin tells us that Alexander knew of the plot and that Olympias had instigated, but doesn't really cast any blame on him, just says he kind of let it happen. And Plutarch tells us that Olympias was blamed at the time for the murder more than Alexander was. So our key suspects of being patrons or supporters of Pausanias are typically Olympias, Alexander, Amentas, which was Philip's nephew and displaced heir of his brother, the sons of Erapus of Lincestus, which were an upper Macedonian noble house that may have held the Macedonian throne as like puppet rulers under the thumb of the Illyrians, and King Darius III of Persia. Following the murder, Alexander was quickly raised to the throne. But that doesn't cast undue suspicion on him. Macedonia was surrounded by enemies, so there was a need to act quickly. And the general Antipater, Alexander's chief supporter, 
Alexander's chief supporter amongst the generals, was used to Macedonian tort life and had already survived several sudden deaths of chains and assassinations of chains. So, you know, he was accustomed to this and knew the importance of getting a strong and reliable heir on the throne as quickly as possible. So the swiftness of Alexander's ascension and certification could, and likely does in my opinion, speak more to the relative routineness of assassination in the Ardiad's court than to any scheming on his part. There are also claims that Alexander encouraged the death of his father for glory, which I think are a little lacking. Like, yes, Alexander was going to be left behind in Macedon while his father waged the opening stages of the campaign. It's not really thought that Persia, uh, that Philip's ambition stretched to conquering all of the Persian Empire, and he was middle-aged, kind of suffering from many wounds at this point. And I would say it wasn't altogether unlikely that Philip would die during the course of the expedition. And further, Alexander had already shown ability to win glory as regent. When Alexander was serving as regent briefly at 16, he had already done that and fought in the battle field of Tyrania at 18. So winning glory and probably fighting off uprisings amongst the Greeks or other of the conquered peoples seems like a near certainty at this point. Even noted Alexander hater Richard Gabriel dismissed Alexander as a suspect, citing the fact that he could have become king simply by waiting for Philip to die in battle against the Persians, or he could have arranged any number of ways for it to happen more quietly or even on the battlefield. He also reasons that Olympias, Alexander, or someone else in the Macedonian court could have killed Philip in private and thus should probably be ruled out. I don't find that as convincing because... Olympias and Alexander pretty much demonstrated themselves to be pretty smart at this point. And to the extent that it would have mattered, which is unclear whether the leading Macedonians would have cared if Alexander had assassinated the king. Because it had been done before and then the assassin raised to the throne. But regardless of that, it seems to me that encouraging Pausanias, a man with a known motive, would be better for PR than having Philip die of poisoning. Which also, you know, Alexander at least seems to have been genuinely very pious, very religious, and very keen on getting and keeping the favor of the gods. And so murdering his father wouldn't have necessarily jived with that goal super well. But maybe he could have, you know, juggled some legalese and convinced himself that having another do it wouldn't cast blame on him in the eyes of the gods. But I just don't really think... Alexander was involved. It could be because, you know, when I was a kid first learning about Alexander, I read that he was suspicious of his father's death and like kind of fearful he was next. So, you know, maybe that's colored my perception of the event ever since. But I just, I don't know. I like to believe he wasn't behind it or involved. Another reason that the finger is sometimes pointed at Alexander is because Pausanias was killed when fleeing the scene. So Pausanias had a horse waiting for him which indicates that the dude wanted to live. It also probably indicates that he had somewhere to flee to, which leads people to suspect outside involvement. However, as he's fleeing, you know, he's haul ass and he's jetting, he's running. He trips on a vine and is cut down by his three fellow bodyguards of Philip, who were Alexander's friends and would later serve in Persia with him. Which, of course, further fuels speculation, because it could be, you know, they were really mad that this dude killed their king, or 
especially like in plain view, we don't really need a trial. Or it could be that they were involved in the plot and wanted to stop him from speaking. Amentas, the son of Philip's older brother whom Philip had jumped for the throne, but kept alive, living comfortable, kind of having like a party life in the court of Pella. He's sometimes considered a, su- a suspect, but Guy seems to have just enjoyed chilling and uh, doesn't really make much noise in our sources. But he was killed following Philip's death, which I don't think he was involved in the murder, probably wasn't actually suspected in it. But, you know, coming to power in the ancient world often meant cleaning house of potential rivals. If Alexander were to die, Amentas was very obviously the next successor. So, best to cut him out. Likewise, the sons of Erebus III seem unlikely to have been involved, though as Adrian Goldsworthy points out in Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors, we shouldn't just rule them out because if they were involved in the plan, it was incompetent. Incompetence isn't an alibi necessarily, because sometimes people are just dumb. A third son of Erebus, known as Alexander Lincestus, who was also Antipater's son-in-law, he was allowed to live after swearing allegiance to the chain, though he would be killed several years later after another plot to kill Alexander was revealed. And this turn, this in turn brings us to Darius III. At this point, as you may recall from way back when we talked about the Persians, the Persian Empire was not at its strongest point, and there was a series of assassinations that even allowed him to take the throne. So the Persian monarchy was kind of in disarray. There was internal struggles, internal questions about the legitimacy of the king. And so some point the finger at him and say, you know, he would be an obvious beneficiary of Philip's death because it would lead to possibly the cancellation of the invasion of the Persian Empire. And it also it also would have gotten him time to work on some of these domestic struggles in Persia because if the campaign wasn't postponed, the new regent would have to re the new ruler of Macedon would have to reestablish the power of the throne and it might even collapse in a dynastic struggle as Macedon had been known to fall into in the past, and no one could have foreseen that Alexander would surpass Philip as a conqueror. He was like the first great Macedonian king, so another one following in his footsteps, and one so young didn't really seem plausible at the time. Still, we can never say for certain who it was, if anyone aided or encouraged Pausanias, and if anyone else was the brains behind killing Philip II. Just fun to kind of think about, toss around the idea, like I said, love a murder mystery, wanted to indulge myself a little bit with that. Now, in the immediate aftermath of Philip's death, Alexander was confirmed as king of Macedon with the help of Antipater, as I've already touched on. The brothers of Alexander of Lincestus were killed for their alleged involvement in the plot to kill Philip II. Amentas was killed, as was the royal diviner, not for any suspected involvement in the plot, just for being plain bad at his job, because the day of the murder, he declared that the omens for that day were good. So, tough break for our guy, misreading the vibes very badly. Other Ardiads were purged as well, because, remember, any Ardiad male could make a claim for the throne, and though Alexander had already been confirmed as king, was the adult successor of the greatest king in Macedonian history, and even had some pretty good battle experience under his belt. 
He was still a 20-year-old sitting atop a collection of kingdoms conquered and put under the thumb of one man who ruled through charisma, personal loyalty, and personal fear in just the last 23 years. So there were people throughout this whole Greek world with like young people with memory of not being ruled by the Macedonians. So it was eminently possible that one or multiple parties could sponsor one of these potential rivals in a bid to the throne, which could allow further rebellion to spread and blossom. So, you know, unfortunate reality of the time dictated that potential rivals had to be taken out. Now, Aridaeus, Alexander's elder brother, who, as we've touched on, had some form of mental health issue, was spared because he wasn't seen as a potential threat to the, as a potential ruler or potential king, potential claimant to the throne. Attalus, the general who had offended Alexander and whose niece slash ward was Philip's newest wife, and I guess widow now, newest widow, and Parmenio, best field commander amongst Philip's generals, were in Persia leading the expeditionary force. Parmenio was very important. He was the general who won the great battle over the Illyrians that Philip received word of on the same day that he learned of Alexander's birth, It is also said that Philip sort of slyly roasted the Athenians by sarcastically noting how he envied them for being able to elect new generals every year because in all his time he'd only found one general worth anything. Of course, referencing our guy Parmenio. He was also very popular amongst the soldiers and had about 10,000 under his command at that moment. And he was Attalus' father-in-law which doesn't necessarily you know, speak to any particularly closeness between the two on a personal level. And in fact, Attalus does not seem to have been well-liked in general. Still, this was a tricky situation for both Alexander and his generals to manage. Attalus was obviously aware that his relationship with the new king was less than stellar, to say the, to say the least. And there were letters exchanged between him and Demosthenes gauging the possibility of Attalus going to war with Alexander. Attalus seemed to have been open to it initially before sending the letters to Alexander and swearing his allegiance. However, as Jojo would say, it was too little too late. And Alexander ordered his death, which Parmenio carried out. Parmenio was rewarded handsomely for this, gaining even more prestige and import in the army, reaffirmed as second in command and many of his allies and family members would assume important commands and positions in Alexander's army, which would become important as things develop later on. Perhaps, perhaps the most tragic deaths to come in the purge following Alexander's ascension to the throne were the murder, perhaps gruesomely, of Cleopatra Eurydice and her daughter, born to Philip. Neither of these two posed any threat to Alexander or really anyone at court, particularly with Attalus out of the way. And Olympias is often blamed for their deaths, though, again, it may stem from toxic ancient views of powerful women. Alexander might have been responsible, like, we don't really, we have no idea, there's no indication who was behind their murder. But this was the first such recorded instance of the murder of a child or woman during a dynastic struggle in Macedonian history. We don't know that's just because we have sources regarding Alexander, or if it's because it was essentially unheard of. When I say first recorded murder of a child, I believe that is specifically a female child or daughter, as they are sometimes known. 
Amidst these purges and executions, some of which occurred following Philip's death and some perhaps months later, Philip was buried fitting Philip was buried with a lavish funeral befitting his remarkable life. Alexander also recalled his friends Nearchus Ptolemy and Harpalus from exile pretty swiftly after his father died. At this point, Alexander sets about showing the contradarias and the Greeks that he meant business. Some Thessalian nobles were seeking to flex some independence now that Philip wasn't around anymore. So Alexander mustered the army, and although the Thessalians blocked his main path into the region, he went around them, which caused resistance to collapse. And the, 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 this is just hard for me to do. The Thessalians would become an important ally in the war against Persia. This swift action likely prevented others from finding allies and preparing to resist the young king, who at this point turned his, append- turned his attentions to Greece, marching into the Peloponnese, and reconvening the lead of Corinth, the lead his father had established for the war against Persia. The members, all Greek states minus Sparta, raised Alexander to leader of the lead, Strategos Autocrator, it's probably like a fancier way to say that, but that's what we're going to keep it. But leader of the lead and confirmed that the war of vengeance against Persia was on. Plutarch has some bars about Alexander the Titan throne. So I'm going to quote him here. Alexander was but 20 years old when his father was murdered and succeeded to a kingdom beset on all sides with great dangers and rancorous enemies. For not only the barbarous nations that bordered our Macedonia were impatient of being governed by any but their own native princes, but Philip likewise, though he had been victorious over the Grecians, yet, as the time had been not sufficient for him to complete his conquest and accustom them to his sway, had simply left all things in a general disorder and confusion. It seemed to the Macedonians a very critical time and some would have persuaded Alexander to give up all thought of retaining the Grecians in subjection by force of arms, and rather to imply himself to win back by gentle means the allegiance of the tribes who were designing revolt, and try the effect of indulgences in arresting the first motions toward revolution. But he rejected this counsel as weak and timorous, and looked upon it to be more prudent to secure himself by resolution and magnanimity than by seeming to truckle to any to encourage all to trample on him. In pursuit of this opinion, he reduced the barbarians to tranquility and put an end to all fear of war from them. He gave rapid expedition into their country as far as the river Danube, where he gave Sirmus, king of the Tribulians, an entire overthrow. And hearing the Thebans were in revolt and the Athenians in correspondence with them, he immediately marched through their pass of Thermopylae, Thermopylae saying that to Demosthenes, who had called him a child while he was in Illyria and in the country of the Tribulians, and a youth when he was in Thessaly, he would appear a man before the wall of Athens. Now, this is me again. Basically, what our guy Plutarch is saying. Though Philip had done much, his death left Alexander with an area teeming to be rid of him. And while many of his advisors counseled him to try to win them back with honey and give up, give up hopes of keeping Greece, Alexander rejected this and gave war to any who wanted it. You know, he was like, whoever wants it can have it, threw in thrown hands immediately, until he reduced and subjected all who dared rise up. Plus, he roasted Demosthenes, which, in my opinion, always worth mentioning. So, 
full quote there jumps a little ahead of where we are now. I just wanted to include it all at once so it's, you know, stop bars. 336 BCE coming to an end. Greeks appear to be loyal. They've reaffirmed Alexander to his father's position. And Alexander returns north to begin conquests of the Thracians and Tribalaeans that Plutarch mentioned in the spring of 335 BCE. In these early days, the army was still very much the hardened, well-trained, experienced force that Philip had molded it into during his 20-year reign. And it is likely that these early campaigns to to re-solidify Philip's conquests under Alexander's rule were more important for the experience that they granted Alexander an overall command rather than to the army itself. I'm going to skip over covering the battles in great detail for now because we'll cover them in way more detail in the Alexander the General episodes coming in March. But needless to say, Alexander defeated the Thracians before marching against the Triboli, which was the force who had severely wounded Philip's leg and taken a bunch of plunder from the army in 339 BCE. Alexander had his artillery forces help a main body of the Tribolean forces who typically relied on, you know, hit-and-run guerrilla-style tactics and eventually provoked them into a full-scale charge, which the Macedonians were able to defeat. Though a force was on an island in the Danube River, which continued to elude them for a time. Now the Gittae, which were another group in the region, they raised a force of 10,000 infantry and 4,000 cavalry, and Alexander roused his forces to meet them, crossing the river Danube. Arian tells us that Alexander was seized with a, po- with a pothos, or heroic or Homeric yearning to cross the Danube. His father had been the first Macedonian king to expand that far, but Alexander, like he would time and again, intended to do much more than his father. Alexander led a small force against the Dete, floating across the river on rafts and filling on rafts and tents filled with straw, surprising them and, you know, staring them into fleeing. At this point, the Tribalians seeking refuge on the island in the middle of the Danube, as well as some other tribal kings and leaders in the region, sent peace overtures to Alexander, who had obviously made them aware that he was not to be taken lightly and, you know, would not hesitate to take any means necessary to attack them. Alexander next continued westward, to confirm the allegiance of the Paeonians and Agrianians, only to learn that two Illyrian chains, Cletus and Glossius, had formed an alliance. Now, Cletus had seized... Cletus or Cletus? Let's do Cletus. Cletus had seized a city near the border of Upper Macedonia, or perhaps in Upper Macedonia itself, and Glossius was en route to join him. Alexander marched swiftly to reach the city and laid siege to it, but was unable to track it before Glossius and his army arrived, which posed a dangerous situation for the Macedonians. Hinged between the two forces and without the manpower necessary to fight both at once, Alexander used the display of the army's training to stare the forces of Glossius into running away and allowing his forces to withdraw. Again, more on this to come, and I don't know how cool that sounded, but this was a, like a pretty smart and pretty cool display from Alexander of thinking outside the bots already. The Illyrians expected him to continue fleeing, but once Alexander had gotten his army safely across a river, he launched a surprise attack, sending both Plytus and Glossius fleeing back into Illyria and reestablishing 
the security of his kingdom on the western frontiers. Unfortunately for the Greeks, the about seven months that Alexander spent campaigning on his western and northern borders allowed a rumor to spread that he had been killed battling the Illyrians. And so the, the Thebans overthrew their appointed pro-Macedonian leaders and blockaded the Macedonian garrison within the Tadmia, which was like a building on the fortifications of the city's walls. Hearing this, Alexander marched his army to Thebes in just 13 days. The Thebans at first didn't believe it was him, and so he kept getting closer and they're like, oh, it must be Antipater. Oh, it must be some other Alexander. I mean, it was a pretty common name, so can't really blame him for that one. But then he arrived outside their walls with 30,000 infantry and 3,000 cavalry at his beck and call. The Thebans had been in communication with the Athenians at this time, but as usual, they were all talk, and so no help would be forthcoming. And yet Thebes, given the option to just, you know, Alexander was like, you guys can just surrender, turn over the reigning leaders of this uprising. But they said, nah, we're going to fight. Thebes was a proud city, until recently the hegemon of the Greek world, and they were confident in their walls, their fighting prowess, and I would guess they were confident in the likelihood that, you know, given a prolonged siege, someone would join their struggle. So Thebes voted to fight. And they even freed many of those held in slavery in the city, arming them with weapons sent by their absent allies in Athens. Normally, taking Thebes would have required a prolonged siege, but the building the Macedonian garrison was held in was part of the outer wall of fortifications. And with a massive army assembled outside the gates, the Macedonians eventually broke through and sacked the city. Now again, more on this in the Alexander the General episodes. Diodorus and Plutarch claim that 6,000 Thebans died in the ensuing battle, and the city was destroyed. Again, this was part of the course in the ancient world, while unfortunate, and though Philip was lenient comparatively often to his contemporaries, he too had destroyed cities in this way, with all the inherent violence that came with it. Though the sack and destruction of a city as famous and important as Thebes sent rever- reverberations through the Greek world, Though the sack and destruction of a city as famous and important, important as Thebes would surely have sent reverberations through the Greek world, but it was also, you know, intended to. Priests, high-value citizens, and buildings of import were spared. After consulting with his Greek allies or presenting, you know, the theater of having consulted with his Greek allies about what do we do about the Thebans, it was decided the remaining citizenry would be sold into slavery. Some estimates put this at 30,000 people. The city was abolished as a city-state, and the fortifications were destroyed, except for the Tadmia, which would continue to serve as a garrison, and two states destroyed by the Thebans were refounded. The Greek world was reminded that Thebes had Medes during the Persian invasion of Greece in 480 BCE, you know, gone over to the Persian side, which, you know, was designed to make it seem a fitting beginning for the coming campaign of vengeance against Persia. This is the point when our guy Demosthenes runs his mouth trying to raise Athens to war against the Macedonians because I guess our dude was just an idiot and just, like, I don't understand really. He had already done this before and they lost when the Thebans were on their side and now the Thebans were gone, reduced to atoms. 
and he was still like, let me, let me holler at the boy and try to fight him. It was kind of, and this one, he's, you know, ridiculing Alexander, calling him a boy, making fun of his youth, all that stuff, just missing his credibility. But Alexander was lenient in his dealings with Athens, echoing his father, and also, you know, the importance of the Athenian navy could not be overstated here. He negotiated with them through an ambassador, handing a list of 10 men that he wanted handed to his custody, which included Demosthenes, but he relented when they asked. They're like, hey man, we're not going to do that. He was like, fine, just give me this foreign mercenary. They're like, cool, but he escaped and joined the Persians, which wasn't really a big deal. The destruction of Thebes and the message it sent had been enough for Alexander, and indeed enough for the Greeks to see that the young king was not his father. But like his father, he was not a man to be trifled with. And this would pretty much be enough to keep the majority of the Greeks save Sparta from rebelling against him throughout the time he was away in Persia and as far as India, and to keep them rising up against Antipater. So it worked, you know, brutal, tough, but it did work. Secure in his position and holdings, Alexander was now ready to invade Persia. Before we get to that next episode, we need to discuss the financial, situ- the financial situation that Alexander inherited from his father. As I've touched on throughout the season, one of the reasons behind Macedonia's swift rise under Philip was its, ri- was its richness in natural resources, including population, waiting to be effectively used and harnessed. This richness only increased under Philip's conquests. However, Philip was a big spender, necessitating constant conquests to fund his ambitions his lifestyle, his modernization of the nation, his resettlements, and to pay for his army. Our ancient sources made a pretty big deal about the cash-poor nation Alexander inherited from his father. And I'm going to have an entire episode dedicated to how Alexander handled money throughout his time as king. And, you know, his massive reserve of personal wealth that he would have drew during his conquest of the Persian Empire and beyond. But for now... Let's just concern ourselves with the beginning of his reign, and for this discussion, I will be relying primarily on The Treasures of Alexander the Great, How One Man's Wealth Shaped the World, by Frank L. Holt. I really enjoyed this work, because while it's super specialized, it was also very accessible, which I appreciated. It's a little kind of like semantics at times, but it's good. And, you know, if you're into this, I would recommend checking it out. Holt. Holt begins his work by assessing the claims that Alexander inherited a poor nation, using Tertius and Arian's recounting of Alexander's speech during the so-called Apis Mutiny, which occurs near the end of Alexander's life and reign. For now, we only need to worry about the fact that Alexander, in his speech to rouse his men back to supporting him, notes pretty specific sums left to him. I'm going to use Arian's quote because it's a mite better in my opinion. My father left me only a few gold and silver cups, with less than 60 talents to offset his debts of 500 talents plus the 800 more I had to borrow to begin the campaign. Tertius gives the same 60 talents in hand, 500 talents in debt number, and the historian, the contemporary historian Theopompus was super harsh on our guy Philip, saying that he couldn't throw, or he couldn't throw away his money fast enough calling him a simple soldier with no grasp of management or finance. Tough. 
which maybe on the financial side had some merit, but overall seems a little bit dramatic. Like, dude was managing kingdoms and, like, conjuring them and quartermastering his army and stuff. Now, to be clear, specifics of ancient speeches largely made up, particularly in cases such as we have here with Alexander, where our sources were writing many years removed from the events. But historians are pretty much in agreement that Philip was a rather lavish spender, and despite his, effort, his efforts to increase mining and otherwise bring gold and silver influxes to the Macedonian economy, he often was cash poor. They also largely agree that the treasury was in poor straits when Alexander inherited the throne, even if they doubt the reliability of the specifics listed in the Apis speech. Frank L. Holt notes that Alexander conveniently skips over his other assets, you know, He's got castles, he's got natural resources, he's got ships and stuff, he's got jewels, he's got resources beyond gold and silver and talents and coins, including his horse Bucephalus, who you may recall allegedly fetched the sum of 13 talents. He also notes that Alexander was able to hold a lavish funeral for his father, as well as host festivals and sacrifices before launching the Persian campaign. For my part, I would imagine that the festivals and sacrifices for the campaign may have been part of the loans that he mentioned needing for the campaign, but, you know, whatever. Essentially, Holt's argument is this. Alexander was indeed cash poor and had a cash flow problem at the start of his reign, but he was still wealthy and far from impoverished. He further argues that the narrative of the poor Alexander was raised by him and his contemporaries and successors, Prove the virtue of Alexander and the Macedonians when compared to Darius III in the Persian Empire, which was a famous trope and a tired and old trope that the ancient Greeks used time and again in their accounts of struggles between East and West, between themselves and Persia, and that this accounting was continued by later historians. He also notes that this temporary cash shortage would continue throughout his reign, including when he was including when he was the richest man in the world, and was not altogether uncommon for ancient kings and generals constantly at war. So, all in all, to sort of sum up this episode, Alexander inherited a powerful army, a cash-poor but asset-rich nation, a plan to conquer the Persian Empire, and spent the first year of his reign solidifying this power, demonstrating his, ruthless, demonstrating his ruthlessness, his skill, and his fit as a successor to his father Philip, and readying to lead his army on their glorious destiny in the east. But that is all the time we have for today, but be sure to follow the show on Instagram at Podcast and to drop those five-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. Next episode, I will be discussing in further details Alexander's financial skills, his money management, his resource management, all that good stuff in Alexander the Financier. And that will, of course, be out on January 31st, still on that other, every other week grind for now. So, until next time, peace.